this evening. I'm going to be talking to Suvadra, asking him a few questions about taming and transforming and subjugating gods and demons. And then after that, we're going to have a sevenfold puja. Okay, and we'll have a short uh, tea break between the two. So, um, so if you don't know Suvadra, um, well, basically, um, what to say about Suvadra? He's a, he's been a very close friend of mine for uh, I think about eight years since I met him at Astana when I was on the Dharma Life course there, and I was about uh, I was about a year after out of university and still a bit all over the place and. I think I could quite confidently say he's one of the reasons I got through that Dharma Life course, actually. Um, but yeah, um, Suvadra, I think, is one of the kindest men I've ever met, actually. He's sort of uh, unrelentingly kind, actually. Sort of um, kind to the point that it's not just, oh, that's nice. It's like, whoa, that's, that's actually going to change me. Yeah. You know? Um, and uh, let me see. Uh, sorry, that's enough now. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, he's uh, he's um, he's done quite a lot in the movement. He's he started off in Manchester. Well, he's involved in Manchester in the Manchester Buddhist Centre. Um, he was involved in the ordination team here in the very early days with Sabuti, uh, part of setting up the new process that's you know still going right now. Um, been to India. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we've done a lot of work in India. Um, but was also caring for Bante in Bante's last years, and I think it was someone that Bante very, very much trusted and had confidence in, and you know was a friend, yeah. friend to Bante. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, um, someone who's done a lot for the the movement and order. But um, I'll just say as well, he's also just a remarkably generous man. Like. <laughs> Again, like this, it's the same sort of thing as this sort of kindness. It's sort of generous to the point of like, whoa. Um, like, just I'll give you an example. Like earlier, earlier this year, Suvadra um, knows quite a lot about astronomy. Mm-hmm. He's got a past in astronomy, and um, I asked him for some advice on a telescope, and uh, I showed him a particular one that I was interested in, and he said, "Oh, yeah, that's that's all right, but." Uh, I've got this uh, massive telescope that I can't use. Do you want it? <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and it's finally exchanged hands this weekend. Yeah. yeah. The whole of it now. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So I'm, I'm very, very, very grateful to have Suvadra as a friend. Um, yeah. And uh, just feel, feel like uh, I, I'm so honoured to be sitting here with you and interviewing you about, about this topic. Um, and actually, um, the reason I thought about asking Suvadra to do this as well is because um, um, there's partly he's just very sort of very versed and sort of uh, immersed in the um, kind of the, 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 the mythology and the symbols and the uh, iconography of Buddhism. Uh, but in particular, he does uh, the Cho practice. Um, which is a practice where you sort of very much explicitly offer yourself up to uh, gods and demons, mm. and in doing so, you, you sort of you it has a transformative effect, mm. as far as I understand. Um, um, so I thought it'd be a, a man who is very sort of familiar with the subject. Thank okay. you very much. Yeah. <laughs> so um, if. Um, if when I'm speaking, I'm, I'm sort of slightly facing this way, so it's sort of feeling natural to sort of like speak to this half. But if I forget to speak to you guys, uh, somebody begin to show hands that you can't hear me or something like that. Or vice versa. I know that sometimes we talk this way and then it's very quiet there, and when we talk this way and it's very quiet there. Okay. So, yeah, yeah, brother, I'm ready. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so, uh, 
Take it away. I uh, I wanted to start with kind of start kind of start the basics really, uh, and start from the beginning. And uh, I was born at a very early age. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to start with the question of what what is a demon? Uh, what is a demon? Well, mm. as I said in a, in the small group this morning, demons like a you know an English word. And I don't necessarily think demon uh, in English. I sort of automatically think Mara, which I think is a, an easier term for us to use because, uh, well, Buddhism speaks about Maras and they've got a particular way of speaking about the Maras, whereas demons have got a different you know, history, different culture that it's come from. Still, it's an evocative word. And uh, even when you translate Mara into demon, it does say something. And as you said, I'm doing the Cho practice, and uh, the founder of the Cho practice, the initiator of that lineage, was a, a woman figure in Tibet back in the 10, 1100s. And she was asked what a demon is, or what a mar was, and she said, a demon is not a big black monster. It's not a big black monster that's outside there chasing you and terrorizing you. A Mara, or a demon, as it's troubles translated, is anything that hinders your spiritual development. Mm. That's what she says. Mm. So she's using sort of language that is almost very familiar, psychological language that we're using nowadays. She even says that, um, uh, and so a demon can be a friend or even a family member that can hinder your spiritual life. Mm. And, yeah, well, many of us have experienced that, certainly. So, you know, setting it that way, it's interesting that that's, that's what a demon is. But that's not all that's to be overcome. Mm. What there's, you... Well, there's the gods. The gods. So what are the gods? Mm. Well, the gods are all the positive forces that are aiding your spiritual life, but you're depending on them and you get attached to them. Hmm. You expect from them and you even sort of plead, you know, oh, please gods, you know, give me this, give me that, and it'll make things easier for me. But that's not necessarily what you need for your spiritual life. Hmm. Uh, you mustn't be dependent on one or the other, expecting from the gods and fearing from the demons. Hmm. So the whole lot's got to be overcome. Hmm. Does that make it any more clear? It does, yeah. I mean, it's interesting because I mean, with the um, example of the demons, uh, it sounds like they can be both inside and outside, in a way. And so, presumably, that's the same with gods. You know, they can be yeah. internal and external. Internal and external. And again, the founder of the Cho tradition, she makes that quite clear that uh, instead of using primarily the Mahayana or even the early Buddhist uh, listing of the four Maras. Mm. Um, <coughs> can I remember all four Maras? So uh, the Mara that's uh, the uh, son of the gods, the Mara that's the Klesha Mara, mm. in other words, a sort of emotional Mara. Uh, help, me, help, help me out, guys, here now. Uh, Skandamara. Skandamara. And Mara. So the Mara is the Mara of death. So Machik Labdron, uh, she does use them occasionally, hmm. uh, but she uses another uh, classification. So there are Maras that are external, so they can be like typhoons, tornadoes, tsunamis, hmm. uh, falling bricks on your head. Uh, it can be actual enemies like your mother or father or your boss, uh, somebody that you've wronged and there's a vendetta out. Mm. So those are like external Maras. Mm. Uh, internal Maras, she says, the second set of Maras, which are emotional Maras, mm. a bit more like uh, the glaciers, the poisons that manifest in your psyche. Mm. And then there's the Mara of intoxication or infatuation, and especially intoxication when you think you're making a bit of a progress mm. on the path. So it's like I called earlier on today, the Mara of bypassing. Mm. And then 
those three sets of maras, which are, you know, have got legs and arms and you know, like centipedes and millipedes, there's so many variations of them all, but they all come down to one root, and that's the mara of ego clinging, ego grasping, which is the fundamental project of the Dharma, to cut mm. that mara at the base. Without cutting that mara, you'll always get the other maras reappearing like Hydra's head. Mm. So, uh, yeah, the four, four levels of maras. But, you know, I, I used to ask, I used to ask, like, I know, Basantara and other people who've been doing the chur, used to ask some of the lamas, uh, well, I can't quite sort of get, are you saying that the external maras are, are just sort of like, they're not the ghosts, because they must be hallucinations. So what is... What is the external mind? What's an internal mind? Sometimes I couldn't just get actually what was going on. Hmm. And Basantra gave me a, a sort of very good pointer. He said, well, in a way, it doesn't matter what the classification is. You've just got to decide is it a mara. And if it's a mara, you overcome it. Hmm. You have to tackle it. You have to face it. And you have to, as uh, Padmavadra was saying earlier on today, uh, try and see it. Mara, you're known now. If you can see it and know it, well, you're, you're well on the way to actually dealing with it. Uh, so the, the first thing is really to just, you know, don't, don't get caught up in too much in the classifications, but, mm. but just be aware of what hinders your spiritual life and what is the nature of that hindrance. And what do you need to do to overcome that? I mean, it's quite, it's, it's quite a process sometimes to get to the point where you can actually <clears throat> look at your experience objectively, though, isn't it? Because often we're, we're in something, aren't we? You know, we're sort of actually, we're, um, you know, we're, uh, it's like we've already been slightly possessed by, by, a, by a demon or partially possessed, yeah, perhaps, yeah. you know, and... Uh, it can take a while before before um, we can get that sort of distance from it to to see it for what it is, and sometimes that's like a you know a friend might point it out, or the the intensity of a mm. of a retreat mm. or something might yeah surface it or yeah. something yeah. Um, but um, I guess I'm quite interested in this process of how 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 do you go from you know knowing that there's something not quite right. Mm. And something's, you know, uh, grinding. Yeah. And, you know, yeah, the gears aren't meshing. Yeah, yeah. To actually recognizing, ah, that's, you know, I see you, Mara. That's what it is, mm, and this is, mm. this is what needs to happen. Uh, well, I mean, some Maras are very obvious, but you can, you can even even when they're obvious, you know, like other people can see them, and they can look at you and say, well, okay, we we know what's going on with him. You don't see it. So very often a spiritual friend is really the the one who helps you find out what your maras are. And it's sometimes even good to ask your friends, well, you know, what do you think of the maras that are chasing me? Mm. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, sometimes it is difficult to work it out. Where does it all come from? Because, you know, quite a number of uh, our experiences are formed very early on. You know, when we're quite young, when we're almost sort of not really reflexively conscious. We're reactively conscious, with, you know, in our lives, with our parents, with our families and our brothers and sisters who we're fighting with and, and our friends at school. And things happen and we don't know how to deal with them. And we do things to them, like pack them away in, you know, subterranean cupboards, push them down under the ground so that we don't see them paint them over so that they're not visible mm -hmm. and it takes sometimes years to realize that oh actually this is what's going on mm. and yeah i think you and me and other people we we have to go through that mm. and i think it's a it's the process of exploration and uh, a necessary exploration mm. but it's it takes time mm. Sometimes it's completely obvious, but other times it's not. And you just have to uh, just work it out as best as you can with the help of your spiritual friends. Mm. Mm. Yeah, so I mean, that, that, that kind of points to the importance of conditions in a way again, doesn't it? And yeah. It of, 
importance of being around spiritual friends, yeah. meeting spiritual yeah. friends, but also allowing allowing people to get to know you mm. in a way, mm. uh, allowing people into your life yeah. um, and being a part of other people's lives. Yeah. Um, Do you remember that Bounty said somewhere that um, uh, getting to know another person, another person is like exploring another country? You remember he said that? I don't actually know. Yeah, I don't know. Pardon me, pardon me, about you would probably tell us. It's in pieces of fire, but it comes from somewhere else. It comes from one of the seminars, I think, or a lecture. Uh, anyway, this is, this is one of the things he said, but I, I've thought it's not just another country. It's like another person is like multi-dimensional. So you see sometimes the tip of the iceberg Sometimes you get a bit of a glimpse underneath, you know, what's underneath the, uh, uh, the, the water. But actually, there's so much more that's there. Mm. But not to be too one-sided, there's also potential. So, it, mm. you know, the iceberg sort of like, it meets a point, but actually then it goes up into other dimensions. So a person is multidimensional mm. up and down. Mm. Yeah. So... Um I was wondering if, uh, if if you're up for this. Uh, if, if you're up for this. If I'm up uh, for this, of course. If if you <laughs> if you had a um, if you had an example of like of a Mara that you've encountered in your life, yeah, uh, that you've had to transform and overcome. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Good. I think probably the the one that is most memorable from being the first one that that. Uh, I sort of really thought in terms of like that mm. was uh, self-pity. Mm -hmm. I used to react, and this had been going on for, for a long, since I was a kid, that uh, things would happen to me and I would go, you know, oh, you know, it's happened again to me and oh, you know, poor me, poor me. And, you know, you'd be in bed at night, you'd be so like emotionally stroking yourself into saying, poor me, poor me, in the hope that when you say that, that, in your imagination will come the people that give you the, the comfort and the pity that you need or that you want. Mm. And uh, I realised that uh, it was a habit I'd got into and I really wanted to get out of it. And I'd, I'd tried things like, you know, meditation and it didn't seem to move it. And so uh, I sort of made a vow and it was uh, using sort of a certain amount of force. Mm. But I hope, I think, probably with a degree of compassion. So I made a vow. The next time it comes up, I will not give in to it. Mm. You know, I, was, I saw it the, as a Mara. Mm. And I said, I'm not going to give in to you. Uh, you'll try and do it, but I'm not going to give in, okay? Mm. And so, like, I don't know... One day later, probably, just sort of came back again. I got maybe rejected from some guy, and I felt, oh, God, dear, poor me, poor me. I'm never going to get a guy, am I? And uh, no, I'm not going down that path. It doesn't work. Hmm. And in a way, it was a bit like seeing the house builder, hmm. the Mara. Yeah. He'd built up a whole sort of structure in my mind of, if I do this, if I do that, I'll get some comfort in my pain. It didn't work, and I didn't change, and I reacted uh, just the way I'd been reacting all, all those, those years. But once I actually took a, a hold of it, uh, using a bit of grit, you know, mm. I'm not going to give in to this. Mm. Uh, you think, Mara, you, 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 you're going to sort of like lull me into that sort of soppy condition? No, not mm. having it. Mm. And, and I think I did eventually beat it. Yeah. Yeah didn't take too long. Mm. It's interesting, that example, because I think sometimes I know with myself I can, uh, I think I can indulge these things quite a lot yeah. in a way, and it's, it's a bit like uh, I try and negotiate with them first. You know, you know if I, um, I don't know, sort of slightly banal example, but if I allow myself to eat this much chocolate tonight or something, then, <laughs> then um, you know, that's okay. As long as I don't eat that, you know, two bars and a whole go, that sort of thing. One bar's all right, if you don't, as long as you yeah, don't yeah. eat two. Yeah. So you get a reward of one for not eating two. 
but in a way, it's like the problem isn't solved. Yeah, know? yeah. Uh, which is, I don't know, usually some sort of inner sort of discomfort or dukkha of yeah, some sort. Yeah. Um, well, eat, eating, I mean, there's a whole thing around eating that, um, you know, when it's a, it's a taking in thing through, you know, mm. through your, your, you know, your mouth and into your, through your taste buds, which have got an emotional connection and into your stomach, which has got like a, a sort of satisfaction element that comes with it. So there's a whole thing built up around eating that comfort eating and mm. avoidance eating and mm. yeah, sort of negotiating, negotiation eating, mm. just like what you described there. You've got to, got to see the, uh, the sort of different little Mars that are going in and out, weaving their way. Mm. Uh, and, you know, basically it's, it's just the work of the Dharma. It's not the work mm. of psychology. It's getting to grip with your greed, hatred and delusion in all its manifestations. Mm. And it takes every trick in the Dharma to mm. keep you on track mm. and to keep you know, working on what you need to work on. Um, somebody asked today, uh, well, I know, how do we tame the Maras? Well, you tame them with the Dharma. Mm. I mean, that's actually what the Dharma's for. It's for getting right down to the basic Mara of ego clinging and the ignorance that's there with it, which pulls you into all these things. Mm. And so you use all the things at your disposal. So in the Chur teaching particularly... Uh, this is what you're trying to do, but all the teaching is in terms of like the five precepts, the six paramitas, mind training texts. It's all the same. Mm. Yeah. It's not. It's not a particular uh, wand that Magic Labdron waved when she created the Chur practice. Mm. And said, okay, you know, you do this particular thing. Nobody else has got this particular thing, but we have. Mm. And it's not like that. Uh, Chur is is. Sure, it is the Dharma. Hmm. Except for one Lama said it. Well, yes, it is the Dharma, but more so. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, it was just sort of like, you know, pared down to the real essential and, 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 and going for it. I find it quite interesting. In, um, um, I think it's actually Sangharakta's le- lecture, the 1979 lecture. He, um, he, he, he talks about the function of the guru, doesn't he? Mm. And um, he doesn't add anything new, the guru. You know, there's the, the Buddha gives gives the you know the illuminating teaching, uh, and then the guru is the one that um, sort of puts it into a form, or or, or somehow takes it. Um, but yeah, puts it into a form that can go into the depths and mm. start transforming mm. our unconscious mm. and uh, kind of those what Bante describes as like the primordial energies of our. Yeah of our experience and um, I guess there's something about the language I mean I quite, I quite personally I quite like the language of demons uh, yeah. myself I mean um, you know for me like there's just like there's something about actually the, the visceral <laughs> nature of it uh, and, and in, the, in the life and liberation you know it's like there's there's sort of blood and there's guts mm. And there's uh, dark knees holding their heads mm, and yeah, things like yeah. that. And um, there's something about that that I find, um, you know, affects me in a very different way than um, ordinary um, teachings in a certain way. It's, uh, it, com- it comes with an atmosphere or something. Yeah, but I think you sort of, didn't you just leave your in- initial point of what the guru is doing and go on to this other thing of what you... You're experiencing the Mars, experiencing the Mars in a particular way, like the blood and guts and the the colour and the drama and so on. Mm. How do the two come together? Did you say? Um, I'm quite sure, I must admit. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, the so, guru does. You know, yeah. the guru does bring the dharma down to you know how it's going to be applied. But yeah. in our situation, uh, in the twentieth and twenty first century it seems that we've got cut off from some of the stuff that mm. had been going on in previous centuries, cut off from our culture, cult- mm. cut off from uh, the blood flow of our culture, because, mm. well, as Bante put it one time, that uh, 
Western culture seem to take a wrong road with Christianity mm. and cut us off from the images, the myths and the vitality of seeing the universe as an alive place. Mm. So uh, one of the things that Bhante has, has done is pointed us, pointed us back. It's not really a nice grammatical way of saying it. He, he pointed uh, to the fact that this has happened and that we need to connect with the myths Mm. Which you know, they're not just sort of, they're not just symbolic images, as he said in that talk. Mm. Uh, they are our life forces, mm. and we see these things, and they come into our life in our dreams. They come into our life in poetry and love songs. They come into life in TV, drama, films, mm. and we love it. Mm. And you said you asked earlier on about. Um, uh, how would you how would you know you know which Mara was affecting you what was what was going on? One of the things I think you can do is look to see what the myths are that attract you and mm. are alive for you. Look at your dreams. Mm. Look to see well what poetry do you read? What type of books do you read? Mm. Cormac McCarthy is it? Yeah. yeah. Blood and guts <laughs> in every page. Yeah, that tells. <laughs> That tells me something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we just look but, at all these things. I mean, but there's something, I mean, I won't dwell on this for too long, but there's something incredible about, uh, about the way that Cormac McCarthy writes in a book. <laughs> oh, of course. In a book like Blood Meridian, because it's like, it's, it, yes, it's all that visceral, yeah. yucky stuff, but the, the writing like, is so elevated that it's heightened. You know, the whole thing is heightened yeah, yeah. and it affects you in a very different way from just, I don't know, a Arnold Schwarzenegger movie or something like that. Yeah, well, I'm not sort of, you know, I'm not sort of uh, trying to sort of compare heights and depths of mm. literary, uh, you know, elegance and film crudity. Mm. Um, it, it's, it's not as simple as that. Yeah, you're attracted because mm. he's, he's, he's got a way to attract you to that, that life that's there in those energies of blood and guts and so on. I'm involved in, supposedly I'm, I'm involved, we're supposed to be involved in blood and guts through the chore practice, but I could hardly read a page of what you recommended. <laughs> <laughs> and one of, the, one of the lovely old llamas that I met, uh, you know, I said to him, uh, you know, oh, last night... Uh, cockroach fell on my head and I, and I just jumped up from bed and, and, I, and I screeched and I said, so what, what type of chore practitioner am I? <laughs> he just laughed, well, yeah, we've all got our things. <laughs> but yes, I, I, I think uh, in the myths and in the films that we watch and the things that we're attracted to, look and see what is that energy, what, what is it channeling? So you'll find there's something there. I, I, I said this evening to somebody that when I uh, had to choose a sadhana at ordination, I didn't actually know until a week before. Sagramati said, you know, which one, which one have you chosen? I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you have to choose a sadhana before, you, you know, when, for, at the time of your ordination. Fancy will give you a sadhana, but you have to ask for it. So which one are you going to ask for? I don't know. And in the end, I chose Amitabha just because I liked the colour. That was it, that was all. But somehow, that fed into all the stuff that goes on in me about falling in love and life and, yeah, the blood of, blood of living. It, it was the completely right sadhana to start with. But I didn't know that just because of red, that led me into a whole sort of mythology of things that I was connected with. Hmm. Hmm. I find it quite interesting. You, you mentioned something as you were talking just then about how, um, like these things, these things, they put us in touch with energy that we're out of touch with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, as it were, out of touch with. But you know, yeah. Sometimes we're holding energy down and it, there's something pressing up, so we're in touch with it. Yes. But it's, you know, trying to create, you know, a balance, you know, 
don't you come up, your gun keeping you down, and you're all the time like this, you know. Yeah, I'm in touch. Yeah. I'm not in touch. Yeah. Well, Ben, there is that point that, you know, uh, I think, again, it's from the lecture, you know, you want a full-blooded Buddhist life. Yes, you know, yes. You, you, know, you don't want to have, you know, if there's too much tension... It's not working in a certain way, isn't it? If there's too much tension. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, but if there's tension, then, you know, there's, there's, there's something going on there and there's some life there and you've just got to work out what it is that's causing the tension. Sometimes it is as simple as just you're trying to hold something down and not experience it. Other times it's more twisted than that. And, you know, we spoke the other night about how some things, when they're kept down, they actually twist you, even, th- even you know, bodily they twist you, mm. so uh, yeah, getting in touch with them but it, it's, you know, it, it is really essential that we find these ways into our emotional life mm. and as Bhante said we need to find the emotional equivalence to the Dharma teachings mm. of what's going on so, mm. yeah I mean, listening to Padmavada's talk which, you know, brought to life again so much of what Bhante said in 1979. I, I, I reread that talk just a couple of days ago, and uh, just thinking of what Bhante did by giving us that indication that we had to, you know, be in touch. And, and he certainly, he loved that material of the life and liberation, the colour, the drama, mm. the mythology. Um, and I think by him giving that particular talk, and it was impromptu, that talk, uh, he brought into our sangha, I think, at least at that point, probably he'd been doing it before, uh, but he brought into into life, he wakened up all these energies connected with Padmasambhava, connected with all the sort of forces that uh, Rudra represent, represents. Mm. Mm. Yeah, a great talk, Padmavada. Yeah. I, I think one thing that I was, I was kind of struck by, both Bhante talk, Bhante's talk, but also I think Padmavada really, really re-evoked it again this morning. Like, just the fact that, yes, there's sort of, we can talk about demons in terms of sort of, like, pers- almost like personal struggles, uh, and even, you know, in the sense of our sangha, but then... Or, or sort of, you know, the people around us. But then there's this sense of, like, actually something really big, you know, that there's... Um, I mean, he goes went as far as to say, you know, the whole of existence. Mm. But then I guess, like, to not get go there quite yet, you've also got, like, on a cultural level, mm. you know, there's this is sort of... Um, there's trends or patterns in our culture, I guess, mm. which are which are probably... Well, which are hindering, hindering the Dharma, mm. Perhaps you could say, mm. and um... well, in, in that talk, he he, he speaks about this uh, uh, borderline between the collective unconscious, the the individual, as it were, unconscious, and the collective unconscious, mm. that between the personal and the social, as it were, mm. that the interaction between them. I mean, there's there's nothing else apart from people that create culture, mm. and it's. Everybody's got their, their myths and their demons, and those get incorporated in culture. So, yes, Bunty's driving through London. These mm. big buildings are built by people for particular purposes. Mm. And those are the things we've got to work with. Mm. Yeah. It's interesting with them, because there's like, like, you know, that's the, the economic demon, so to speak, but it's like they have an energy to them. You know, they, mm. they have, there's mm. like a gravitational pull, yeah. so to speak, that that draws you in and um, I don't know the uh, well it's in it's in film it's in popular culture yeah. you know the um, I don't know making money the self-made man mm. or you know the sort of in a way there's sort of that I guess you could say there's some like positive things in it like this sort of clarity of thinking that's developed in like the, I guess the business world so yeah. to speak yeah. you know how to how to sort of derive the perfect solution to raise loads of money yeah, so yeah, to speak yeah, you know there's yeah. there's actually something attractive about that but yeah you know, I, mean, I i noticed that but not from the uh, not from the the uh, economic 
point of view, from the power point of view, when I visited St. Peter's in Rome, that it was a building that you know made a statement, and what you went into the building, uh, you know, it was all this power just you know gravitating in towards this building. You could feel as a like outside all these pilgrims outside, devoted to the uh, the Pope, hmm. and inside, it's, I didn't want to be in there. Hmm. I didn't want to be in there. It's mm. just so the world's uh, Catholic tentacles spreading from, from that one building mm. right out around the world. Mm. Mm. Well, that's quite a good image of a demon, sort of <laughs> giant <laughs> tentacles. Yeah. Catholic octopus type thing. <laughs> Overcome that thing. <laughs> yeah. But it's a good question. How do you overcome something on that scale? I mean, is well, it? on that scale, you know, yeah. I don't think individually we can do it on that scale. We can only mm. do it collectively. And only do it, I think, really in the long term. Yeah. Uh, these things aren't really overcome very easily. Yeah. And you, know, you know, you think of uh, of uh, you know overcoming the communist regime in. Uh, you know, the Russian bloc of countries. Mm. It took a long time to, for that to come down. And it didn't happen just by one person like Gorbachev. Mm. It happened by a, you know, a whole number of circumstances and people working in particular ways. Mm. And, you know, and again with the, the Berlin Wall coming down, it, it was people mm. who, who did that. Mm. So if we are going to you know, make an impact on the world, we really all have to be overcoming our individual demons and working together. Mm. Um, I, was, I, was, I was going to say to create demons, but not to create demons, to, to create a, a, you know, sort of, um, uh, a counterforce to those demons in the world. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, we have to, yeah. and we have to use every possible approach of the Dharma to you know to bring it up like, you know you need you need painters, you need artists, you need poets, you need scholars, you need yoga teachers, psychotherapists who based really strongly in the Dharma. Uh, you just need writers, you need you need the whole lot. Hmm. I mean, it's quite something sitting in this shrine room in a way, isn't it? Because it's this shrine room's a world in itself. It's sort of a, yeah. you walk into a realm when you come into this place, and I guess it's like um, you know you're saying you need a sort of positive counter. Yeah. You know, perhaps you could say that you're trying to create a positive mythology, or oh, definitely yes. Yeah. Yeah. Or not necessarily create it, but find it. If, yes. there, if there is a mythology there that can be used, yeah, um, yeah, to to create it or find it or something in between that, yes, uh, and and this world's a you know perfect demonstration of it, mm. um, but you know not just uh, I mean like Aloka just works selflessly for, you know, for creating this for the sangha for the world, which is just you know absolutely fabulous. He's doing it individually. But it's for others. Mm. That's 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 wonderful. It's like the Bodhisattva ideal mm. manifesting through his work. And mm. look what we've got: Buddhists and Bodhisattvas all round us. It's just fabulous. Mm. I came in this afternoon just to photograph all the walls. Mm. And and I, and I think you know sometimes in the, in in the myths. You you know, you you look for for the myths that you're connected with, and you know we sat at a table this evening, and our friend had various tattoos on, didn't he? Mm. And he was explaining to us what the tattoos were about, mm. and what his connections were with them, and it was fascinating. I I wanted to you know, I was going to say I wanted to explore further, but I mean I wanted to you know find out you know all about well. Why mm. this thing here and why that there and and what are you going to do next? Mm. So it's like on his body, his tattoos, as with quite a number of you, uh, the tattoos are 
connected with the emotions of our life. Mm. And uh, this is the point where, yeah, this is the point where I'm, I'm practicing at the moment the practice of liberation by wearing. <laughs> yeah? So you see I'm wearing the, the, uh, the raven, the Celtic raven, the raven's the messenger of the gods. So I'm, I'm, I'm sort of wearing this as part of my chore practice. It's, 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 the, gods part, it's the gods part of the, uh, uh, the, the, the interview. We've spoken about demons quite a lot. Don't take the God responsibilities part. So this is the uh, this is the uh, the messenger of the gods. Well, that's not all. I've don't just have one T-shirt. So. Padravadra will know that uh, in the Bardo Todol uh, text, Liberation by Hearing, there's also a text in it, Liberation by Wearing. So when you wear something, whether it's this or a tattoo, then... <laughs> you get it? I got it. Whether it's this or a tattoo, you, or, or on a wall, you're creating a connection with something that's got an emotional link that leads you to something higher. So this is for me, you know, don't be frightened of death. I'm getting older. And I don't know how long I've got. I've been through two reasonably serious cancers quite recently. Mm -hmm. Don't know how long I've got. Indications are very good at the moment. But nothing can, anything can happen anytime. Nothing is certain. So... Don't be frightened of this. Hmm. I've got another T-shirt, but it's not, not this one here. You'll see it maybe tonight in the puja. <laughs> <laughs> Liberation by wearing it. And, uh, yeah, the next one is the next level. Hmm. Do you remember Padmavadra Bhante speaking uh, very early on about uh, some of us should, should try and... Uh, uh, you just use one colour to decorate our rooms and our clothes and so on and just live with that colour like green I remember that in Nepal I used to see this guy near the great stupa in, in Kathmandu and he was always dressed just in green green shoes, green trousers he was a bit like a tramp but not dirty not, you know, he was very sort of and he never spoke but I found out, uh, oh, was that after about three or four years of seeing him, he was a Taro devotee. <laughs> and he just always dressed in green. Everything. <laughs> it, was, it was amazing. And, you know, people would see him and, you know, they'd look and, wow, something about that guy. <laughs> well, I, know, I know somebody who pretty much just wears blue, um, blue lampshades and... <laughs> Blue watch. <laughs> yeah. Um. Put Piquese back on. And this is where. <laughs> this, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I was going to say, and this too is liberation by wearing. Mm-hmm. The Tibetan texts and, and the, the Therma texts, which are about liberation through wearing, are quite often wearing uh, llama hats, uh, llama cloaks, and, and different implements that I have to go with it, go with them. Mm. So this is liberation too by wearing. We're, we're indicating and reminding ourselves that uh, we have to Mm-mm. live by the three jewels. Mm-hmm. And it's also showing others. Mm. Anyway, I don't want to dis- detract you from your <laughs> agenda <Okay>. here. So <laughs> <laughs> put it aside anyway. But I, I did have a question that um, sort of follows on from, from, from your T-shirt, actually. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, well, I mean, death is one of the Maras, isn't it? 
you know. Much of Mara. So how on earth do you transform that Mara? Mm. How do you subjugate the Mara of death? Is it uh, possible? How much, how much time have we got? Uh, just plenty of time. Okay, yeah, okay. Time. Um, okay, so I'm going to deal with this particular question of another way. I'm going to go. I'm going to go down to the fundamental Mara of ego clinging, mm. and then deal with it from there. Um, ego clinging has the effect of creating you that's separate from everything else. You are the most important thing in the universe. And you cling to your identity of you being separate from everybody else who might take it away from you, take all the things that you value, but also, you know, they might give you things you don't want. So that's you, separate. And then there's everybody else who are objects, subject-object duality. We know from our Buddhist teaching that we've got to overcome the subject-object duality. But one of the things with the subject and an object is... They're subjects and objects because we don't really see them as they are. We see them fixed. He's like this. He's like that. He's like that. He's like this. I'm different. I'm like this. I'm like that. We see ourselves in, in such you know, rigid, limited ways. And in doing that, we stultify ourselves. In fact, we're dead when we do that. And... The objects that we see don't have the life that they really have. They're dead. So to overcome the mara of death, you have to see movement. And this is what Bhante was getting at when he was talking about seeing the universe as alive. And that, yeah, he did, said he did have a bit of difficulty with, was it chromium steel? Something like that? Plastic. Certain kind of plastic. I think when I heard it, it was definitely something, a particular metal like chromium steel or something. But what he's getting at is that he was living in an alive universe because he himself was alive and seeing himself, as it were, with emptiness. Hmm. It's only emptiness that gives the space for everything to move. Because emptiness is not, there's nothing there. It's the freedom, it's the movement that nothing is fixed, nothing has got a label, nothing attaches to it, it's open. So in the chur practice, you're trying to bring life to all the demons and all the gods. And in doing that, you're bringing life to yourself and you're doing it by giving, not resisting the, uh, the objects, not resisting the maras, and you give. So the object that you are seeing out there is not actually out there, it's your perception. Hmm. And if it's your perception, it, you've separated it off from yourself. You give to it, and you've given it life. Hmm. You've given it food to live, you bring it in, it comes closer, the subject-object begins to attenuate until you're able to break it. Hmm. It's a lifetime work, but that's the lifetime of the Dharma. Mm. We have to do it. Mm. So, you know, we're, we're frightened of death, but yeah. when, I, when, I, when I sort of think, well, maybe I've just got a couple of years, or well, maybe not even a couple of years, maybe, maybe I won't wake up tomorrow morning. Then, you know, at that point, seeing that I'm, I'm frightened, open myself up to it let myself feel like be free and that well anything can happen. Mm. Don't be frightened of it. So in a way it's like death is not an ending or it's not so, there's not a sort of finality to it. It's it's part of a process. It's well we can say that but of course we don't really we don't really know, do we, until we actually have insight to see to see that. Yeah. So the thing is to get the insight to see so that we can see the, the movement, the impermanence, the flow, the emptiness, as it were. Mm. But if we don't see it, we can take it on the basis of right view, but actually we don't know yet. Yeah. And until we get insight, because we can always just wind back and forget it all.
Yeah, so I think, you know, really it's, it's working to, you know, develop the insight that you see things as they are, mm-hmm. that other people are alive beings that are not fixed and not fixed in the way you want them to be, mm-hmm. ever. Mm-hmm. And you're not like that either. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's good. I think um, we'll probably wrap up in very soon, get ready for the puja. But um, there's one last thing I wanted to ask, and it does follow on from this. Um, it's just more of a personal question, really, actually. It's just, um, well, if that's something you're thinking about right now that's on your mind in terms of... Death. Death. Yeah, okay. Um, yeah. Well, what are the... Um, what do you want to use the last time you've got in this, as Suvadra, to do uh, in your Dharma life? Yeah. Oh God, so many things, <laughs> so many things. Uh, oh God, and if I mention them, of course, then it's sort of like creating the sort of uh, the sort of basis for a commitment to do those things. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. I still have to, I still have to complete the revision of Dardar and Bush's life story, and. Uh, uh, Poor Katja Rinpoche, I still haven't managed to, to get his full life story yet. Mm-hmm. His uh, relatives have been promising it for 30 years. Mm-hmm. 30 years, really, honest. And they keep saying, or at least the main person keeps saying, I'm so busy right now, but we'll do it next year. Mm-hmm. I've got something, but mm-hmm. it's not the full story. Mm-hmm. And there is a good story, there's a really big story there. which involves Katya Rinpoche's brother, and it's the brother's nephew who is the one that I'm not able to get the full thing from. So there's a story about Katya Rinpoche and his brother, who was a, who was a lama also. And uh, I went on a three-month tour retreat up in Scotland. I visited 108 battle sites a few years ago to do Cho at 108 battle sites in Scotland. There's many more battle sites than 108. Mm-hmm. But I also carried my own particular Maras with me mm-hmm. and had to deal with them on the retreat. And I'm trying to write about it. And uh, I've made a good start. And I think it's probably going to be the, the last main writing thing that I'll be able to do, probably. So those three things I want to do, I want to make, uh, I mean, there's so many things I want to do. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I want to teach more, I want to uh, visit uh, China, Mm. you know, I've been learning Chinese, I want to, I want to, I want to learn Chinese properly. I want to go and speak to my friends in Chinese. I don't let myself think too much. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you, Subhadra. Thank you. Yeah, really good to good to hear.